0: Thank mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Talk. This is your host, Alan, and it's going to be a fun episode. I've got uh, Mr. Taylor Henry here with me. He's Columbus native, and uh, we'll get to learn a little bit about his story. I wanted to start off with a little bit about that telecast you're holding.
1: Yes, well, th- first of all, thank you so much, Alan, for uh, inviting me here. I'm very honored to be on your podcast. And yeah, I'm playing a, a telly, American made telly, that about a year ago uh, I walked into. Uh, Levin uh, Chuck Levin's Music in Wheaton, Maryland, uh, probably the best music store in the Washington D.C. area, and uh, I'm left-handed, uh, and I saw on the rack this beautiful Sunburst uh, Telecaster mm-hmm. uh, that was selling for twelve hundred something, thirteen hundred, roughly uh, dollars, and I, and of course you know that's several hundred below list, and I was thinking, what's wrong with this guitar? and uh so i asked the salesman he said well there's a little nick on the back of the uh, strap pin uh and i looked at a tiny little nick that you know i could i could have you know fixed you know, I have not yet but I, I couldn't pass it up you know and uh they had uh, you know 6 months of financing no interest and i took it out and uh i've never owned a telly before i've owned gibsons i've had gibson ES335 uh, i have a gibson uh CS three thirty six. I have Fender Strat and I have several acoustic guitars, but I've never owned a Tele. I've always in my mind associated the Tele with a Buck Owens sound, right? And, and uh, but uh, after getting this thing, I realized that uh, you know this is more really more like Fender's answer to the Les Paul.
0: Yeah, I would say that. Of uh, when I first started playing guitar, of uh, my friend, he was playing a Gibson Les Paul, and at that time all i had was uh alvarez acoustic and so i like uh, alvarez I, i do too but uh the gibson les paul you know it's it's a stocky thing it's a heavy guitar it is it's a big block of wood right and uh, you know, if you play hour and a half, two hour gig or more, buddy, you're gonna have a worn out show. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's another thing about that little chunk right there. It's not near as heavy as the right. Les Paul. That's right. And I've 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 had i uh, I've had an SG, and it was uh it had it was too much for me, too much rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Telecaster is, I mean, especially the older I get, it just kind of lines right where I want to be uh, electrically.
1: Yeah. Well, I like having options, and and uh, t- Tele is a good all-purpose guitar. I found mm-hmm. uh, uh, the Strat is still has its own sound, uh, particularly when you use it on, uh, I guess, the fourth position. Uh, it has that really uh, it, uh, my favorite example. Of course, I won't be able to play the st- Strat, okay? But the, if you ever remember this. That's an old Van Morrison song called Domino, mm-hmm. and it's played on the Strat, and you can you can hear that single coil sound immediately, as you know. And so the the, the Strat is a very versatile guitar, guitar but it has uh, combinations of pickups. It has three single coil pickups that uh, has a little more nuance and versatility than does a Telecaster. But uh, if you've got uh, a Tele and a Strat and a Gibson, you know. You can cover a wide range of yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can
0: do whatever you want at that right. point. So, uh, well,
1: just a little bit about you. Uh, born and raised in Columbus, Mississippi? Yes, sir. Uh, I was born and raised in, here in town, Columbus. Um, and my folks go way, way, way back. Uh, you know, my grandfather was a physician here. I'm named after him as Dr. Taylor Henry. Uh, he b- became a senator from this area uh he was the U, not U.S. but the state. states the state center from Columbus for 13 years in the last part of his life. In fact, he died down in Jackson. And um, my dad was uh, uh, like me. I had a career in journalism, right, and television journalism for 30 years. My dad had been a journalist. He was an international journalist. He was a World War II correspondent. He was on the USS Missouri when the Japanese surrendered. Um, He was a contemporary of Cronkite. They knew each other, Walter Cronkite, formerly a CBS News anchor. Oh, nice. A legend. Yeah, Yeah, no kidding. Um, In fact, I'll do a slight digression, but uh, Cronkite's last memoir that came out in 98 called A Reporter's Life, he mentions my dad, I think it was page 87 to 89. But he's he's talking about how they... uh, They were competitors. My dad worked for the old International News Service, which later merged with UP to form what we now know as UPI. The I in UPI was International News Service. It used to be UP, INS, and AP. So anyway, Cronkite's working for UP and my dad INS, and they are competing on the uh, North African... Invasion in Morocco early in the war. And uh, Cronkite tells how they raced each other across the Atlantic Ocean on two U.S. Navy warships to get back to the East Coast to be the first to file their story. Mm -hmm. And uh, Cronkite points out he knew my dad was on the faster ship going to Boston. So (laughs) he he had a a dilemma, you know. He said, how am I going to beat Henry, you know? Well, uh, there was a, uh, on the ship that he was on, headed to Norfolk, Virginia. one of the sailors said, well, gee, Mr. Crime Kite, when we get about 100 miles off the coast there, they could catapult my plane off the deck here and I can get you to Norfolk and you can catch a flight up to New York. So that's what they did. And uh, my dad landed in Boston uh, early in the evening, and his editors walked into the bureau there. His editors told him, oh, we hadn't heard from Cronkite. Go get some rest. Come file your stories in the morning. In the meantime, Cronkite flies from Norfolk to New York City, walks into that bureau in the middle of the night, and pounds out his stories and scoops my dad on the story. <laughs> but, oh, man. But, but what he doesn't mention was that uh, my dad's story landed on the uh a cover of Cosmopolitan magazine, and back in those days, uh, that's what Time or Newsweek used to be. You know, mm. the the primary news source uh, magazine. Yeah. Style. So anyhow, I I um, kind of followed in his footsteps. I became a television journalist. I, I worked for the CBS station in New Orleans, the city I love. Uh, WWL TV. I uh, had a wonderful career there as a political reporter. Left there, joined CNN in Los Angeles as a correspondent and then later transferred with CNN to Tokyo. And from there, I covered the Far East, China, uh, Philippines, uh, Malaysia, Hong Kong, uh, and the first Gulf War. This was during that period. So oh, during wow. the first Gulf War, I was in Jordan, Syria, and uh, Israel, and then r- right after the war in Iraq. So uh, anyhow, long story short, I got out of the news business uh, about 10, about 12 years ago. and. Uh, uh, I, I uh, took a job in Congress, working as a communications specialist for uh, Congressman Joseph Gal of New Orleans, who was defeated after you know this first election. I moved from there to U.S. Senator Mary Landrieu, and then uh, and then in the process, I went back to law school when I was in my 50s and uh, graduated and uh, passed the bar. And, uh, so I'm an attorney now. Nice. So <laughs> and we got a, we got some ground to cover. That's right. And, I'm, and I'm, forgive me for hogging this conversation because because oh no. I'm so honored to be here. And uh, you know, music is my passion. I've been playing since I was 14 years old, and I started writing songs almost from the time uh, I learned to play the guitar. So it's been a lifelong passion and something that's been constant and steady through all the changes in my life. And uh, I have a catalog, such as it is, uh, of uh, of tunes that have been I've been written I've written over the years. Right on. Uh, I'm guessing you own a record player. I own a record player. Mm-hmm. I did. If you're talking about like a 33 rpm record player, yeah, I sure as hell did. But you know what? I, you know, I, I've moved like 17 times since I graduated and it, from it, college. It, it didn't make 79. it with you. And I, <laughs> you know, I had to get rid of a bunch of stuff. I mean, I had I had some great old Beatles albums, and uh, uh, but you know, CDs had come in, and I just had to, you know, sort of stream it, you know, uh, streamline my possessions, and uh, so. Yes, I had, I've had several record players.
0: <laughs> well, I've, got a, I've got a gift for you I want to give to you anyway. Uh, over the pandemic, I spent a lot of time on the road and recording musicians all over the southeast, and we cut it into a vinyl record. And, oh, really? Uh, and the artwork was done by a good friend of mine, Abe Partridge. Uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, you ever, you ever find yourself around a record player, you can plug it in, well, but you, if not, it's a great-looking art well, piece for you know the something? wall.
1: The fact is that I do have a record player. My, I forgot about this. My son gave me one. Uh, about five years ago, and it, it, it's, it's, you know, functional, serviceable record player. It's not a great system or anything, but I do have the means to play that record, and I, I do know from, my son's also a musician, and, and I, I keep up through the latest trends with the latest trends through him, and I did know that uh, their, their vinyl has made a resurgence in recent years.
0: It has. Uh, my favorite record store is in Tuscaloosa. Sadly, their last day in business will be the last day of this month. Uh, oh, what is that? What's the name? Oz Music. And Oz so they'll, they'll be shutting their doors. And they, I mean, that's where I did all my record shopping for years. Is
1: that right? And well, uh, they're I- finally going out. At one point in my uh, career, I worked in Tuscaloosa for five years. I worked for the Fox-owned and operated station in Birmingham. Okay. And uh, I, I was their Tuscaloosa reporter, <laughs> so I know Tuscaloosa well. And I got my master's in communication at Alabama, so I well know you know Tuscaloosa, great right. town. Yeah. And I'm a. I had to say it. Roll Tide.
0: Hey, Roll Tide! I'm with you on that. I- <laughs> uh, I've been living over here in Mississippi now for about five years. And um, when people find out I'm from Alabama, they was like, please don't say Tide.'" And I was like, the thing you have to understand is uh, my father uh, got season tickets and me and my brother grew up in Bryant-Denny. So it it holds a very uh, special place to me. It's not like a, you know, just because I'm from Alabama. It's like I'm – I grew up in the stadium. Right,
1: mm-hmm. I, I'm with you. Well, uh, t- for two of the five years I lived there, we worked out of the, uh, right there in the uh, communications building, which is right behind the stadium. So you know, I, I worked there uh, within several footsteps from the stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, and I co- it's hard to imagine a more electric place in the country no on a Saturday. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they've expanded the stadium. I think it's over a hundred thousand now. Right? That's right. Wow. But uh, back to
0: you, how did music come into your life? That's really why I brought up like a record player or like what was your first
1: memories of, I think I want a guitar. Oh, listen, I got a picture when I was four years old and uh, Santa brought my first guitar. I'm 65, okay, I was born in 1957. I'm an old man. And and, uh, that was my first conscious awareness of loving, I wanted to play the guitar. And the source of it was, the local station here, WCBI-TV, used to have a Wednesday night program. Uh, it, it was a Carmel Taylor and the Country Pals. Uh, they would come on for a half hour, and it was mostly uh, country music, uh, but it you know guitars and mandolins, and so, some of it was bluegrass. you know. And Before that, the guy had been Carl Sossman. He had been the leader of the band before that. And um, and and one of the guys who played in uh, with Carmel Taylor in the Country Pals was connected to the uh, Muscle Shoals studio, you know. So he 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 pl- didn't play just country. He was a professional musician who may well have played on some of the Aretha Franklin. T- I don't know that for sure. I do know that he was connected and one of the musicians they called in to do the sessions up there. Mm-hmm. But th- I think that was my first uh, inspiration watching these country players on WCBI. And then, of course, uh, around about 1964, in February, uh, you know, my family would gather around the TV set uh, every Sunday night, um, have light supper, tomato soup and crackers or something, and watch uh, watch the Ed Sullivan show. And okay. uh, the Beatles, the you know, the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Of course, I didn't play that that night, but uh, wow, I saw the Beatles, man, in their first performance on the Ed Sullivan Show, and I was fascinated, but I couldn't discern what was being produced as music, it, it sounded like noise to me, I and mean, all these girls screaming and stuff, and it was, uh, you know, these electric guitars, and woo, you know, <laughs> it took a while to, to realize how great they were even then. Those guys really uh
0: they changed the game. Like they're they're like uh these bands in history, you know. I mean a lot of people, the Beatles. And then it's well, what's the American answer? It's the Beach Boys. And you kinda well, which one? Which one you going with? And then you have uh, you know, Pink Floyd or uh just or in my in my age you had Nirvana who just completely re stamped and reshaped the way Kurt
1: Corbin was another was left handed player. Yep. Something about those left-handed guys. Paul McCartney, Jimi Hendrix, um, I think Alvin Lee, isn't he? Or one of the, one, of maybe not Alvin Lee, but uh, King, one of the King bluesmen is also left-handed, not B.B. When I was
0: going to pick out my guitar, I'm left-handed. And uh, the guy that was selling me a guitar, he was like, uh, you're left-handed? I said, yeah. He said, consider playing a right-handed guitar. I said, why is that? And he said, you got friends that play guitar? That's right. What do they play? They play right-handed. You want to be the guy that always keeps his guitar in his trunk? <laughs> That's a pretty good point. He said like, you got more, you'll have more dexterity in your fret hand then, and you might you might come out a little better.
1: Well, you probably did. I don't I don't doubt that you did. Um, uh, you know, left handed instruments have become more uh, well the, since the, they kind of dried up since the pandemic, but uh, they bec- they become more common. The m- manufacturers have become more sensitive to the market for for left handed players. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, this is this is the way I learned. And uh, it makes sense that, you know, your left hand is your strong hand. But here's the deal. I'm kind of screwed up, right? I throw left hand, but I bat right hand. Okay. So <laughs> I'm not sure I could have made the transition as yeah. well as you
0: did. Yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, with different things that I do, like uh, sometimes I, I'm a little amphibious. I can do it either way. Or uh, But looking back now, uh, I wonder, because when I'm watching guitar players like Stevie Ray Vaughan Or, I'm blanking on his name, but, um, oh gosh, he was with... Blues player? uh, Oh, no. uh, They sung the Sultans of Swing.
1: Now, I love that song. I'm blanking uh, on... But I blank on the name, too.
0: But uh, those two guys, uh, what made them special and stand out, it wasn't their fret hand. It was everything they were able to accomplish with their picking hand. Right. That's right. And the guy who wrote Sultan of Swings, uh, I don't know I don't know if he ever used a guitar pick.
1: Yeah, well, and another uh, guitar player, uh, Buckingham, Lindsey Buckingham of uh, Fleetwood Mac, does a lot of finger uh, work. And I'll tell you, surprisingly, who, who liked to use his finger on electric lead is George Harrison from the Beatles. I know because I actually met George and interviewed him in Tokyo. Oh, wow. Uh, he was over there, this was 91, he was there with Eric Clapton. And he came over for a two-week tour of Japan, and it happened to be when I was there as a CNN correspondent. Uh, so I managed to you know, score an interview with him. and nice. uh, I met him backstage before his last concert of that tour. And uh, that was an interesting experience, to say the least. But uh, he uh, did some really nice guitar work during that c- concert. One, one song, one of his solo songs called Cheer Down, uh, I noticed he was using his finger. He's doing all this n- magnificent slide work. You know, Harrison was in his solo years. You know, slide became his defining or signature style, right? And uh, he was he was using this uh, slide, and he was he was p- picking it with his finger. And I, and I can understand why he would do that because it's it's a warmer sound you get out of it when it, uh, when you're not using a pick. And then uh, Buckingham, uh, the, just recently, uh, when uh, Christine McVie died. This was one of the singers for Fleetwood Mac. I kind of went back and reviewed some of their stuff. Great catalog, and uh, one of one of my uh, yacht rock favorites is uh, uh, "Everywhere." I want to be with you everywhere. That's just a
0: great, serious channel.
1: It really is.
0: Hey, that's a real good channel, and it's crazy. It's called yacht rock, but when you start listening to it, I mean, that is exactly
1: what it is (laughs) this is like cool this is like Steely Dan and maybe some Eagles Fleetwood Mac you know I guess it's rock for rich folks
0: and that's crazy (laughs) like you you bring up like Harrison and his guitar style like with each of the Beatles even Ringo probably I guess the least popular of them but you can always tell who wrote the song like if it was a really Kind of out there song. You kind of, that was Ringo.
1: Right. <laughs> well, Ringo had always liked Octopus's Garden. Yeah. You know, this, but Ringo was kind of a, wrote kids' tunes. That's the way yeah. I look at it, you know. Yeah. And uh, he was a sort of a child, kind of a clownish figure, but I don't mean that in a, yeah derogatory way I mean he's, he's just a friendly looking guy you know mm-hmm. uh, and he over the years I think beginning with the yellow submarine movie he kind of developed a, a rapport with kids I think you know, yeah more than the rest of them but uh, of course Lennon and McCartney were, were both great uh, and Harrison started out uh, behind the eight ball, so to speak he wasn't writing to begin with but it's amazing if you listen to those 12 13 studio albums the, the development of his writing skill to the point where at the end, Abbey Road, he reached songwriting parody with Lennon McCartney. The two, his two songs on that album, Something and Here Comes the Sun, are as good as anything Lennon McCartney wrote.
0: Here on. Comes the Sun probably is my favorite Beatle tune.
1: Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's said to be uh, the most downloaded tune, uh, at least in the UK, of all the Beatles. Uh, and um, of course, I learned to play that song long ago. But you have to pay a capo, and I don't think I got one. But <laughs> I've got one around if we need to grab it. Well, we don't have to grab it uh, uh, right now, anyway. But uh, yeah, so th- those are those are uh, that's my era, and I grew up with the Beatles. And through the '60s, I watched, uh, and like I'll never forget when they debuted "Hey Jude" on the Smothers Brothers Show, which came on after Ed Sullivan on Sunday night, and that had been pre-recorded in London. And they uh, played it into, and, uh, and that's when I began to realize, you know, that these guys are, are incredible. You know, <laughs> look how far they've come and how different they are than just four years ago. You know, when they were doing yeah, 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 right. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's an Extremely informative group. Of course, the others were too. You know, the Stones. A little beast of burden. <laughs> Oh, so, uh, and I love the stones. Yeah,
0: uh, uh, and it's it's tough and uh I recently a guy named Jack Boswell. He has a podcast called Off the Beaten Jack. He's he's a cat from London and he's here in Columbus and uh Oh really? he's, well, he looks- he's capturing the essence of the town and his premises. When you hear someone not from America, they always say they want to go to Los Angeles or New York. Why don't they ever say Columbus, Mississippi? You know? Well, probably because they never heard of it, right? Right, exactly. And then, two, well, why you know? And he was like, You know, outsider looking at the 50 states independently, it's they say that Mississippi is the most Amer- American state in the union. You know, possibly it's the poorest, but uh, I mean, we got a lot of rich history of music, a uh, rich history, period. And uh, Jack has been interviewing. Uh, business owners and uh, shakers and movers and uh, he's been going out to the city bars and the just outside of town bars and he's been talking to everybody and now, trying to get the feel for this town. What, his name is Jack London? Jack said? Boswell Jack Boswell, he, he's, he's, but from, he's, he's from UK uh,
1: The Commercial Dispatch recently did a write-up on him. I see. Well, that's interesting. So is he doing a documentary or it's, a... It'll be a, like a documentary. Is it a film or is it... Uh, it's just straight audio podcasting. I see. I got mm-hmm. you. Yeah, isn't that interesting?
0: Yeah, I had, him on the sh- I had him on here a few episodes back just to kind of, you know, just talk to him about like, yeah, what are, what are, you, what are you trying to accomplish? Right. And the first, uh, he did another podcast before this one where he rode the Amtrak through the Midwest, and he would—he uh, did a couple of interviews while he was riding on that Amtrak, and then each stop, he would couch surf, and whoever he was couch surfing with, he would interview. And he got back to the UK, and he was up for uh, podcast of the year.
1: Is that right? <laughs> really, on the podcast you did on the Midwest oh, Amtrak? Mm-hmm. Well, I suspect that would be a good source of Americana. Yeah. You know, you find people on the trains, and they're traveling. You know, yeah,
0: these right? are already transient people, right?
1: Exactly, they're movers. And that's what America's all about, really. Is a you know we we started out as a transient population, and uh, you know I, I love the journey. You know the, the the journey story, the Billings Roman novel, novel they call it. You know this, this if it's a novel. You know it could do the same thing in a song, for example. A lot of Dylan songs are about a sort of a journey. You know, even though you don't exactly always know what it is he's he's telling you about, but it sounds like a story, right? Yeah. Like Tangled Up in Blue, you know? Uh, something in the Wind, that one. Uh, Blowing in the Wind? Blowing in the Wind, yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: I've read several, several books, and a lot of times, like, during that period of history, like, whoever's authoring that book will bring that up as being a catalyst for... Uh, I didn't know it at the time because I didn't know what Dylan was talking about, but I don't, that, think, I don't think Dylan always knew but, what he was talking. But there about. was there was something blowing in the wind because, like, <laughs> looking back now, I, I know it was like it was something telling me it's time to make a change. Yeah, well, you
1: know, he based all of, uh, he was heavily based on uh, Woody Guthrie, and uh, of course, Woody Guthrie was uh, sort of the Dylan of the thirties, I suppose, twenties, thirties, and forties. Uh, And uh, blowing in the wind, I think, is, uh, you know, this is early 60s, and the nation was in a tremendous transition, and, uh, you know, it was the atomic age. It, it, things weren't quite as clear cut and simple as they had been before World War Two, before the, American, the United States became a world power. So all this cultural stuff was going on, and, and Dylan embodied it with songs like "Blowing in the Wind." You know, there were, there was social uh, con- upheaval, and especially civil rights. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I think that "Blowing in the Wind" is kind of a mystical. Uh, type of you know, the answer is blowing in the wind. You know, who, who knows? Mm-hmm. And then another tune he did was uh, a hard rain's gonna fall. Well, that's uh, widely interpreted as predicting the nuclear war. You know, or hoping, hoping we don't have one. But it, you know, he's uh, describing the scenes that, that would seem to be from a nuclear holocaust. And, and that very lengthy song, I think it runs about eight minutes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You ever have a? Did you ever get a chance to catch Dylan live? Three times. Yeah, I've That's... had I've had one opportunity. He was playing at the Singer in Mobile, and I waited too long and missed out. And I had friends that went. and They was like, "Buddy, it was magic," because he, he's getting to that point in his life to where he like. Uh, James Taylor recently played Tupelo at mm-hmm. the Bancorp South Arena, and a lot of people said that was he's just past his prime. You know.
1: Yeah, his, that, he, his voice is fading. Yeah. He was, he was great in his prime. But uh, when did you uh, miss that opportunity to see Dylan? Oh, it building? would have been,
0: shh, wasn't that long ago, really? Uh, maybe about 2016,
1: 17? Yeah, I, that was the last time I saw him. I, that, that, at that point, he was doing his Frank Sinatra bit. <laughs> and, and But you know what? Uh, uh, I think Dylan, I enjoy his Frank Sinatra stuff. And, and he's always been uh, rapped for being kind of a flat singer, you know. Uh, but he's a better singer than people give him credit for.
0: I think so. Uh, you know his son, Jacob? The Wallflowers? Uh, I know of
1: him in The Wallflowers. Sure. Like my kids, I, you know, I have 30-something-year-old yeah. kids, so they tell me about these things.
0: I, we caught them live in uh, Memphis, The Wallflowers. And we were standing next to this older couple, and... I heard the the wife tell her husband that front man reminds me an awful lot of Bob Dylan, <laughs> and I, I just I tapped her and I said, "Well, that's kind of strange. You say that? That's his son, because <laughs> you know the way
1: his the way he sings and his movement. I mean, he is his dad made over, chip off the old block, yeah." Well, uh, the the first time I saw Dylan was in London in 1978, and that's when he was in his Alice Cooper stage. He came out in makeup and sparkly costume and stuff. It was weird. Uh, But he packed this uh, arena. I can't remember the name. I was very near Wembley. Uh, And uh, the the, uh, uh, current album at that time was Street Legal. It was called Street Legal. Uh, But, uh, you know, Dylan uh, teases his fans and... uh, Uh, He hardly ever plays anything the way it was written. Uh, You know, the the last time I saw him uh, up in Virginia when he was doing his Frank Sinatra thing, uh, he did a a version of Blowing in the Wind, him on the piano. I didn't even recognize the song. Uh I I, I could, you know, and, and... I only learned after the fact that's what it was. I read it somewhere. Oh, is that what he was singing? How about
0: that, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but, not the way I
1: remembered it at all. <laughs> uh, exactly. But then the next time, and I think the very best time that I saw him was in Birmingham in '98, and it was right after his incredible album called "Time Out of Mind" came out. It was a double album, great stuff. It was a you know a comeback album for Dylan. Mm-hmm. He kind of faded away for a while, and uh, I, it was at the uh, Uh, civic center or civic center there right there in downtown Birmingham and it was a standing room only thing. All the people there, you just stood. And We got there early enough, my date and me, that we were standing right there at the foot of the stage. I mean, I was as close, I was 10 feet away from him. Mm -hmm. And I got to study uh, his stage performance, his stage presence. And, you know having kind of a performing arts background myself, both in journalism, television music, you know I can kind of read you know what the body language is. And it showed me what a pro he is. You know he, 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 he had 360 degree awareness, you could tell. Uh, you know he, he knew where his musicians were, he knew where the crowd was, he knew what he was trying to express. Uh, And he seemed to pull it off in a relaxed way. He he wasn't tense or anything. He he was totally at home on the stage. A lot of folks don't look at Dylan like that. They complain that he doesn't talk that much to the audience. He doesn't. He lets his lyrics speak.
0: Yeah, he's a a storyteller in his songwriting. Exactly. Yeah, and with something like Blowing in the Wind or whatever uh, track you want to name from his catalog, uh, what is there to say, you know? That really, that is mean, says gonna, it all. It says yeah.
1: it all. I mean, here's a guy who won the Nobel Prize, who won the Pulitzer Prize. He's, I think, he won an Oscar, maybe. How many Grammys has Bob Dylan won? I I, I mean, uh, this, this, this he's a, an incredible songwriter, yeah. and very formative.
0: But uh, back to you. 14 years old, picking up the guitar. Would it would it always be electric for you? Or?
1: No. The first guitar I ever bought was a secondhand Chris C H R I S. Uh, it, it was for $15, and it was a right hand guitar. I, re, I had it restrung uh, a couple of blocks from here. There was a music store, and there was a guy in there restrung it for me. And I mean, the, the, really, to play this thing was like wires. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. even a new set of strings. But I was so determined to learn that I I, I bought a Mel Bay a guitar chord book. It's self-taught then? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, and I did have some formal instruction in piano earlier, but... Uh, but not much, two or three years, and it was all the traditional stuff that you learn on piano—what any rock or any, Dylan or anything like that, right. Beatles or anything like that.
0: That's why I quit. My first lessons, I went for about two months, and I told my grandmother I was—I don't want to take lessons from that guy anymore. Because it was—it was just classical, and I was like, I want
1: to rock. Really. And uh, you know, I think uh, in New Orleans in particular, you could find piano instructors who cut through the bowl and get right to. They won't even teach you to read. What, the, to, what most piano, conventional piano teachers do is they want you to learn how to read the music on the book, right? And thankfully, I learned a little of that. But I don't, I don't do that when I play the guitar. I read charts, and then I play by ear. I pick songs off uh, you know, by ear. And uh, or else nowadays some of them I cheat and go on the internet. <laughs> yeah, that helped a lot
0: too. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: but yeah, so it was a Chris guitar and uh, but and then soon after that I bought a K electric guitar, K A Y. And uh, you know uh, and then the next one I think was a was called a Conrad. I mean they're real cheap stuff, you know. A while I was learning it was a Conrad uh, semi hollow body. Uh, and I, I really didn't um, get into the higher grade gear until my junior year in high school. And uh, in reward for good behavior, my mother <laughs> gave me a Christmas present, which I requested. It was a Gibson ES-335, wow. cherry red. Uh, she bought it secondhand for $350. That's,
0: that's how I got my SG. It was a graduation gift.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, you know that was when I got into the uh, higher grade, and then over the years I've owned and you know Martins and Taylors and Fenders and other Gibsons. You know, um, it's been a, you know, I've got to a point I'm up to about eight or nine guitars, including my Fender Precision Bass. But I've collected you know like say five, so it, you know we're talking forty years worth of trading and buying and you know so. Uh, I have I have a modest arsenal. I, I don't play out as much as I used to. I've been in bands in the past, including around here. Um, right now, I'm not in a band, uh, but uh, I do appear occasionally just doing solo stuff, singer-songwriter type stuff. And uh, uh, I'm hoping we'll get together with you here and have a jam here. Yeah, I'm Baltimore. hoping
0: that we can make that work. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, we can get all our work schedules worked out. Uh, if not, we can... We can go down there to Munson's where, uh, Mark is working and we can just make him jealous.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is that where Mark works? Yeah. I see. Well, I couldn't get by that night because my mother, uh, uh, 10 days ago broke her hip. She was Mm -hmm. 95 years old and, uh, she went into the hospital out here and took a turn for the worst and she passed away yesterday. God bless her. She was 95. She lived a rich, full life. And, uh. It's kind of strange when your mom dies. Uh, I'm sure it's a different experience for everybody, uh, but uh, at my age, and, and my, I have a sister and two brothers, uh, you know, we, we knew that the, the end was coming. You yeah. know, um, it, we didn't know whether it was a year or two, but she couldn't have held on much longer. So, yeah,
0: and that it, it ended up being a, a pretty cool little evening. Like I just, you know, I knew a few musicians in town, and I gave them all a shout out and like, stop by, play. It's just gonna be like an open mic, share what you' are working on. Really? And uh, we had a, I mean, we had a pretty good little turnout. Well, I wish
1: I'd showed up and brought my guitar, but uh, I just so I I mean, so maybe we can recreate that magic. That would be wonderful. Is there going to be another open mic uh, at Munson's? We can set that up. Yeah, that would be. I'll I'll start. I'll
0: start working on that when we get done here. I mean, we just built a brand new stage inside, so we might as well break it in.
1: Might as well. And uh, (laughs) I, you know, I I live in the D.C. area. You know, Mm -hmm. that's where I practice law in Maryland, and I'll be here at least another week because uh, we have my funeral. My mother's funeral will be this weekend. So if that could happen, that'd be wonderful. I've been to the place; I like it a lot. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a unique uh, venue. Um, the only thing is that the outside is kind of hard in the winter, you know. But I would imagine from March through, you know, October anyway, uh, it'd be a good place for some outdoor gigs. Mm-hmm. And
0: now, like the new stage, is it's a little indoor. So we got the best of both worlds. Oh, it's
1: indoor. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's stage indoors now. Mm -hmm. Okay,
0: that's 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 what he. uh, Anytime Munson closes the shop for a couple of days, I know he's got he's he's tearing something apart, changing something.
1: I've noticed that, Uh, (laughs) and and I I don't know the owner directly, but I do know that he's related to uh, Professor Art Feenan. I think Mm -hmm. Professor that may not be Art, but he was that's his uh, father-in-law. Right, and uh, I know Professor Feenan and. Uh, We've had him on the show. Have you? Okay, mm-hmm. I bet he's uh, had much to say. He's a very intelligent man. Yeah, he's, uh, uh, retired now. Yeah, we talked a whole lot about uh, like his mission
0: now. With um, you know, he's a very well-known artist in the area, and now it's uh, leaving and passing on the legacy.
1: Right, exactly, and I'm sure a lot of his students over the years uh, were formed by his instruction and inspiration. and example
0: yeah so uh back to you you're coming out of high school was it was it always music was the focus or
1: well i had a um i had a uh uh, several bands in high school Uh, the best band that i had in high school went under a kind of a corny name uh the after hours band we never really could come up with a really good name for the band but it was a it was a group of guys who uh, we had a sax player two guitars bass a drum at one time we had uh, a keyboard uh, but we would uh, we we developed uh, you know quite a set list and, and played around here doing a lot of the music popular at the time. Um, and uh, then then I went out, I went to college in Mobile, so I left town. I went to Spring Hill College in Mobile and uh, graduated from there and jumped right into my television career. So for years the music kind of had to take a. Back seat because the yeah. news business is very competitive and, and it's time consuming and you have to be available at all hours on a moment's notice, and stand out in the rain and you know. uh, So, but it, but, I, but I continued to play. Uh, it's just that I didn't do it with the intensity that I had in high school and college. But uh, curious and uh, curiously, you know, I really got back into it when I lived in Tokyo. And um, I think the reason was because I was so surrounded by Japanese culture. It was my job, and I loved Japan. I, I really did. They but, make pretty good fenders over there too. They do. I owned one, and it was a good guitar. I bought one there, um, and uh, and I made some musician friends over there. The, the Japanese love American music, rock and roll music, um, and yes, I collaborated with a, a Japanese fellow on a, a song. Uh, we we called it "Let's Not Fight Trade Wars." because <laughs> <laughs> at that time we were having a trade war with Japan, right? So, uh, uh, but anyhow, uh, sort of as a diversion uh, because in, in Japan, everything is slightly smaller and, and it's not until you leave, at least my experience was, it's not until you leave Japan that you realize how claustrophobic you've been feeling because the, you know, the, the ceilings are lower, the room space is less. Uh, and, uh, So kind of as a diversion, I really got back into the music and, you know, writing songs and and recording, making demos and uh, really got big. And and then after, you know, after I I left Japan, uh, I I went into it whole hog. I wound up eventually coming back here for a while in Columbus and and had several groups here. Uh, I played with Frank Connor, who deceased now. Uh, Frank was a great musician, good blues man. Uh, we had a group called the Harbingers. Uh, the, the lead singer was Sharon Harbin, one of the best vocalists I've ever worked with under, and played behind. Uh, and then we had a group called Mad Apple that has played up here at the Market Street Fest several times. And uh, Mad, Mad Apple did an album and <clears throat> um, hadn't gone anywhere. But uh, I'm kind of proud of the the product we came up with. I, you know, it was professionally recorded and mixed um, I, I'm not sure it would be something that would succeed on an international scale, right? But it, I would say it's a high quality demo. It's a song, all original songs, and if you, you want, you basically, if the, you know, if you wanted to get a big act to do these songs, well, here's the roadmap.
0: Yeah, it, it's crazy. Like, <laughs> Excuse me. You say that because, like, growing up, I was a huge fan of anything from the UK, and like american music was like second class to me right <clears throat> and as me and some friends uh we get older and we start throwing our music online and then you look and see who's listening uh, a friend of mine uh he's got a it's just him uh, king kai and the heretics his biggest audience australia they i mean they just eat it up over there and then right. uh like uh Aid partridge i mentioned him earlier Huge in the uh, UK and in Europe as a whole, and and here it's uh, Alabama and West Virginia, Kentucky, and that's pretty much where he's at with that playing a lot of shows. Tennessee, kind of like along the Appalachian, and but you go to Europe, big deal. So it's kind of crazy how that works.
1: It really is, um, but you know the English speaking world uh, is. Fertile market territory for any English-speaking singer-songwriter. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think Jack White is real big in Australia, isn't he? mm mm-hmm. I
0: think he's just big all over the world, right. especially with Seven Nation Army. Right. And and every that, every soccer stadium tunes that song up.
1: Right, right. And my son's a big uh, Jack White fan. We went to his uh, studio in Nashville a few years ago and had oh, a look. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Yeah, there was another artist recently I was reading who had a huge uh, market share audience in Australia. I can't remember the name, though. But I know what you mean. It's kind of strange how different, even in the English-speaking world, how different places uh, attach to different artists. Yeah,
0: that's... It seems like it's hard to be anything in your hometown. You gotta, you know. Exactly, you're right. Just, they just—they knew you when you was a kid. And they never forgot it.
1: <laughs> yeah, you always be so and so's son. Or, uh-huh. You know, you always be that guy who worked and washing dishes out at the Waffle House. <laughs> right. <laughs> They'll never really look at you as much else. You know, it's—it it goes back to the biblical thing. You know, no man is a prophet in his own That's it. town. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, well, you, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, all the culture that comes out of Mississippi. Uh, y- y- you know, that goes for the music. All the look at all the great bluesmen who came from around here: BB King, McKinley Morganfield. Mm-hmm. But it's not just music. It's a, look at William Faulkner, one of the greatest writers ever, here mm-hmm. in Mississippi. Tennessee Williams here. Tennessee Williams, right? And so this Playwright. is a culture rich. Place, and, but the thing about almost every one of those guys is that when they were doing their work, when it was current, they were not all that accepted in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. They were sort of on the, you know, the outcast. Uh, the The banks and the, you know, reputable society uh, kind of didn't have anything to do with these people. It was only after they became household names and and profitable uh, as brands mm-hmm. that. Mississippi embraced, so it, I I don't think the process is any different now. You know, if you, you how many Lennon McCartneys, how many Dillons are there? How many Faulkners? How many BB Kings are in? I mean, anywhere, but particularly in Mississippi, they're coming around that nobody knows about, and, and even they start to gain some traction, it's it's a long uphill struggle to get to where you know they they can live by their product.
0: Yeah, and I've heard it put a lot of different ways. You know, you'll see some guys who, you know, they were hitting the road hard 10, 15, 20 years before something just clicked for them. And then every now and then you'll see, and why I think people call it a young man's game, is you'll have these hot shots, these 19 to 23-year-olds and that, and they just, they just hit it. That's right. Uh, exactly. Greta Van Fleet, I believe, would be a prime example of that. They kind of took up the mantle of uh, Led Zeppelin. A lot I would say. Right. Uh, they sound almost identical, and uh, they dress just the way that Robert Plant would dress back when he was younger, just for the girls. And mm-hmm. uh,
1: so, well, there's a guy who uh, loves Mississippi. Robert Plant comes uh, from what I have read and underst- understood. Uh, likes to come over to the Delta, and go down to. I heard he
0: got some dirt from uh, the crossroads. <laughs> Yeah, supposedly. that's right.
1: Yeah, we're supposedly uh, Robert Johnson sold mm-hmm. a soul to the devil, right? To to sing the blues.
0: We've uh, I've done a lot of work with the podcast down in that area, just covering those blues cats before because I want to get their story. And uh, I, I listened to like a lot of this American Life, and one particular, it was a podcast called S Town. They called a reporter from New York to come down and capture the story in Woodstock Alabama just outside of Tuscaloosa right and as years go by and I I've got to listen to that podcast a few times and then I got to knowing some people who knew the people who were featured on the podcast and they was like that ain't the way it was at all that that story was you know it was kind of catered a certain way to make it sound a certain way and so that that's one thing that I've been trying to be real careful with on this podcast is like i've i've talked to um jimmy duck holmes at the blue front cafe in bentonia Mm -hmm. and uh i didn't want to put any words in his mouth i just wanted to tell me the story of the blue front cafe how your parents opened it up how it's a hub for this community and uh what you're doing because he's he's the last of the bentonia blues players now he has taught. I mean, I've taken some lessons from Jimmy just to kind of keep the flame going. And he uh, has he has other guys that he's taught that do a better job than me. But uh, he's the last. Yeah. And so when he's yeah. when he's gone, it's it's yeah. it's, it's over.
1: Yeah. You know? uh, unless the po- folks he taught can pass it down. You know? uh-huh. Uh huh. But uh, yeah, so it's a culturally rich uh, place to be from. Uh, but it's. Uh, Recently, uh, Van, I'm a huge Van Morrison fan. I am too. And uh, so he, I mean,
0: it was crazy. He played like Domino. Yeah. I mean, that is. Uh, man, I've got a lot of his records.
1: And he's coming out with another one. And uh, the, the guy's uh, pro, He's pro, such prolific. Uh, I mean, uh, he he cranks out records at a at a rate that would put much younger musicians to shame. I mean, it's, and when he does come out, it's like a double album. And this is less than a year after the last album. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, of somewhere, um, and I think it was being more, but the line sticks out in my head that where there's beauty, there's been some kind of pain. And, uh, so I think that the, the great art that came out of Mississippi was fed by pain you know absolutely you know in in the case of B.B. King and McKinley Morganfield better known as Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker and some of the other bluesmen I mean they started out with nothing and and they were poor and it it was hard you know and uh, and and
0: not to mention those songs that they were singing those were originally field songs that's right
1: yeah Uh, some some of the call and response songs Mm that uh, Muddy Waters used to do I love I love those and then, uh, well, you look at um, you look at uh, Tennessee Williams. He didn't spend much time here, of course. He was gay, and, yeah. uh So, so socially outcast makes social total sense outcasted.
0: for that time in history.
1: Exactly. And uh, well, Faulkner, he was just an, an eccentric. <laughs> <laughs> right. But not, uh, the, 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 to tell you the truth, gospel, my dad dated one of Faulkner's daughters briefly. Mm-hmm. She she came here to the W. And uh, he t- told us about how he called him Bill Faulkner. Bill Faulkner, a lot of folks don't know, was a pilot. He flew. And so he would fly a plane from where he lived in Oxford here to, you know, at the old airport down on 69 South and pick up his daughter, you know. Mm-hmm. So lots of little connections in Mississippi. Yeah. Know?
0: And I mean, even in the acting world, you got Morgan Freeman. Uh, exactly right. Uh, I mean, don't forget about Oprah. I mean, she's right, Oprah Kaziesco. Winfrey. Yeah,
1: she. You know, Oprah Winfrey may well have grown up watching, uh, at least part of the time, a local TV station here, yep. and now she's a billionaire after her own uh, TV career. That's
0: it. But uh, so after uh, Spring Hill, you were down in New Orleans.
1: Well, see, long story short, I started at WKRG, the CBS station in. Uh, in Mobile, okay, and
0: uh, I spent uh, years down there. I
1: went to school at the University of Mobile. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's Baptist school. That's it. Yes. Right? And, and of course Spring Hill's Catholic. It's Catholic, yeah. I, I'm sure. I and know. that's where
0: I did performative art studies there too, as a minor. Oh, did you really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, I didn't. I was stressed out. A, a buddy of mine moved from my hometown down there with me. He would study at South Alabama, and I was just sitting at the table while he was preparing supper that night. And he's like, "Dude, what?" What is going on with you? You look, you look worked up. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do for a primary instrument. He's like, Well, what? I was, well, music, you have to pick an instrument. He was like, Well, don't you have a guitar right there in the corner? I said, Yeah, but I don't want to play classically. And I ended up going to voice. And uh, that was one of the best decisions
1: I could have made. So you majored in voice. Mm-hmm. Wow!
0: I didn't. I, I would end up uh, dropping out of the music program. I failed uh, the lab portion of theory two right. because I couldn't sight sing good. Right.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, I took. I went back and took another uh, semester in piano at Spring Hill, and the, the instructor there was a jazz pianist. But he you know, and, and I did okay, you know, but it was the same old crap, you know. You, you got to read the notes and, <laughs> you know, play the Ode to Joy or something. Uh-huh. And, uh, and uh, I just, uh, I, I would like Professor Long here to sit down and show me how to tickle the ivories like he does. I, I don't want to go through the Chopin and Mozart. I mean, sure, they're great, you know, they're great, you know. Yeah. But, and they have their own place, but that's not where I'm at musically. It's not to, you know... You know, insult them or uh, in any way or or to, uh, you know, attack or or belittle. You know, that's great stuff. That's high art, right? Just not your interest. Yeah, that's not what I want to do right now. And and frankly, I can't do it. You know, I don't have the uh, chops to play that stuff because I've never developed them. I've never focused on them. I've been more focused on, you know, playing by ear and doing the blues and uh, rock and roll I love jazz. I want to develop jazz as a style. That's my great ambition as a as a guitarist, um, and I've kind of started. But it's uh, yeah. And I tell you another. I love bluegrass. Uh, I've really uh, developed a real love for bluegrass. I just bought that banjo. I sent you a picture yeah, of right. uh,
0: about a month or two ago, and i have done that because of I got to studying some of the songwriters that I really respect right now, mm-hmm. and I noticed that they. Particularly, they all have like a like a claw hammer. Like
1: they, they right. like they yeah. were banjo yeah. players right. first, yeah. uh-huh. right?
0: And they just they brought that claw hammer over to their to acoustic the guitar. guitar. Right. And I was like,
1: I bet that sounds really good.
0: That's yeah. Uh, a Partridge is one of those cats, uh-huh. I, and um, and I was like, I'm gonna get me a banjo, and I'm gonna learn how to play that, and then I'm just gonna bring that knowledge over, and maybe that'll change the entire way that I approach. Uh, chords and writing a song. How's that going? Not too good. I've, <laughs> I've had that thing a month or two, and I, I can count on two hands how many times I've had it out of the case. And like right. most of it is just like familiarity at this point. And right. I've, I'm I'm thinking, you know, in a couple months, I'll probably be brave enough to do it in front of somebody.
1: Well, <laughs> you know, you know, my son, uh, his name's Taylor too. He he um, he's a graphic artist, but he's a musician as well, a songwriter. And uh, he uh, wants to learn the banjo, and I gave him banjo about two years ago for his birthday, two or three years ago. Nice one. And, um, and he's struggling, you know, with a claw hammer type thing. And, and uh, of course, he's had other things going on in his life. He just recently got married and all that. But he still has the banjo, and he hasn't given up, you know, developing it. He might mainly plays a guitar right now. I have a mandolin and, uh, you know, when I put my mind to it, I, I can play the darn thing, you, you know, you, but it, you have to, as you well know, if you've played mandolin or, you, you know, the strings are different and mm-hmm. the the chords are different, but you can start out with two. The, the beautiful thing about mandolin is that it's a, basically a four string instrument. It's got eight strings, but the, it's like a 12 string guitar. There's yeah. two and um so it's easy enough you know i i'm ready to go in 15 minutes on chords two two finger chords and the scales I, you know give me a few minutes and i you know i can what what is it d okay all right give me a minute <laughs> but the, the let me c- get g d c and maybe a minor somewhere <laughs> right. uh, but you know you can you can fake it on a, a mandolin because uh like, you can play a, a, a minor on the relative major. In other words, if you know how to play a G, you can play a tune in E minor on mm-hmm. a major. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so it's it's a... Uh, uh, I have a very nice Eastman uh, mandolin. It's handmade in China, of all places. You know, like most of the uh, instruments manufactured in China are, you know... Yeah. But uh, the Eastman is a, is a good brand, at least mandolin. I've, I've heard their guitars are really good, too. But anyway, get back on and, and, uh, what you were asking. I'm sorry to digress, but I, I left uh, Mobile. Um, I went to Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, you know, as a weekend anchor producer. Then I went to New Orleans, WWL, the CBS station, from there to CNN.
0: How did those, like, first breaking into, like, news like that, was it uh – who helped get you in the door, or was it just your own tenacity that got you in?
1: Well, that's a good question, and there's a story there. I'd started out here in Columbus uh, after the summer after my freshman year. Uh, I was a philosophy major, philosophy, English, double major, okay? But, but I was always interested in not only music, but news, broadcast news. And I started here at WNBC, the uh, radio station. They didn't have a news department, but uh, my father knew the owner. And uh, he invited me to come be news director during the summer. <laughs> yeah. so, so I'd come home from college and, and uh, they'd open the news department, and for three months we'd have news. And I was the anchor, news director, producer, reporter. And then, you know, when it was time to go back to college, I shut down the news operation. <laughs> and, uh, so, but um, what happened was uh, I was coming back, this was my senior year in 1979, it was in May, and we mentioned uh, that Spring Hills is a Catholic. School and Jesuits, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a small camp, a small student body at about that time, about 950 students. So if you stayed there the, the whole four years, chances are, were the president would know you by name. And Father Paul Tipton was the president, and he knew who I was, mm-hmm. you know, over time, you know. And uh, so I was, and I, you know, I did, you know, academically, I was very successful at Spring Hill. You know, I had a, you know high grade point average and so I was coming back and and he knew that you know Mm -hmm. so I was coming back from defending my senior uh, position paper I had to stop at the president's office and drop off something in preparation for graduation the following Sunday and uh Father Tipton saw me talking to the secretary Taylor Henry Taylor come here son come talk to me so I I walk in he said well you're going to graduate on Sunday what are you going to do and I said well uh, Father Tipton I I um I'd like to go in the news business, and I think I'd like to start in radio, and maybe five years I could maybe break into television. And he says, well, hell, I know CP Persons down at WKRG. Clem, secretary, get CP on the phone. Oh, wow. So so, uh, he gets uh, CP Persons, the general manager of the WKRG AMM TV, and FM, on the phone, and he says, CP! I got one I highly recommend. And I'm sitting here in the chair going, oh, my God, I'll never yeah, be able to yeah. live up to this. Uh, but he gets off the phone, he writes it down, here, call CP, and i set up an interview. So I, I did, and the Tuesday after the Sunday of graduation, I walked, in, you know, drove down to the town and walked in, and there was CP, and CP was a man about my age, you know, and uh, kind of, he's an interesting fellow. It turns out that he'd sort of, he was a... Uh, a legend in the television business uh, for for his strange decisions that he made, but it was a successful TV station. And so we're talking, and and within five minutes of this interview, I realize he's talking to me about a television job. Well, hell, I've never seen a videotape machine in my life. Mm-hmm. I, I I've never stood in front of a camera and done anything, you know. And he says, well, here, I want uh, I want you to meet somebody. And he, he opens it, he picks up the phone, and I hear this deep voice, yes, sir. And I say, oh, come here, I want you to meet somebody. Okay, all right. So this guy comes in, I'm thinking, oh, my God, and this is where it ends here. This news director is going to be hacked off that I came in through the front office, right? So uh, it, I meet, this guy comes in, he's, he's a tall, lanky fellow, his name is Bob Horner. And uh, I was just blown away by Bob Horner. He was, uh, he was, he, was uh, 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 he had gone to school at the University of Missouri, which is the top journalism school in the country. He had a master's from American University in Washington. He'd served, he'd been drafted and served in the Army one year in Korea. Uh, he hired me. The guy hired me on the spot. <laughs> and, and for the, that first uh, summer, it was, I'm telling you, it was brutal, Alan. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't know crap, and I, I was thrown into this newsroom where there was a divorcee there and a gay guy over there and a black dude who used to you know, be in the Army and all these seasoned reporters, and I'm just this young, long-haired kid. Of course, I had to cut my hair to be on television, but... This guy has been holed up in a dorm room at Spring Hill College the last four years studying Kant and Leibniz and all these philosophers. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, But Bob brought me, uh, it, it, within three months, uh, brought me by, by mentoring me uh, to the point where uh, by the end of that summer, at least as far as delivery goes and on-camera presence, I was on a par with the rest of them. Hurricane Frederick hit that September, and our, our staff, mainly due to Bob, did a stellar job and CBS News hired him at that point so Bob went off to CBS and he had a great career he's one of the most respected news executives in the television business and I was very lucky to have had him as my teacher and mentor and it is largely because of his influence that, you know, I had the career I did. So that you get ask me these questions and I digress for twenty minutes. <laughs> I no, but I mean, it's it's it's
0: great, you know, because uh, when I think about uh I spent a lot of time on uh Springfield campus and, uh-huh. and University of Mobile, I mean the only difference would be like one's, you know, Catholic or the other one's Baptist. Right. But it's that same real kind of small campus feel and man, I, I so many people I know that came from those two campuses yeah. are so successful now
1: absolutely and and what i love it's a it, real tight network it is it's and it's open to faith and i'm a, i am a believer I'm, a, I'm I practice i'm a catholic i practice my catholic faith i'm a christian mm-hmm. and uh so uh yeah i and i like that and i think that's frankly i think that's missing in in, in our, our institutions of higher education today particularly the more Prestigious Harvard, Yale, Stanford, uh, you, you know, they, they treat uh, religion differently. It's not, for example, it's not theology, it's religious studies, mm-hmm. you know, because they don't want to, to say it's theology, well, Theo means God, right? They don't want to presume mm-hmm. that there is a God, so they just call it religious studies, which is kind of an arm's length way of dealing with it. Yeah. Uh, but you're right, I, I, I don't know about the uh, University of uh, Mobile, I mean, uh, Mobile was it? it used to be college. I've not been to that campus, but I'm, I'm aware of it. I used to go by there all the time when mm-hmm. I was driving down to exit Mowville. 13. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, so absolutely. How about that? Well, small world, you and I have some things in common. We, yeah. We've uh, been lived in some of the same places. And, mm-hmm. and
0: I can't tell you, like, just out of Springfield and uh, Mobile, just uh, so many talented musicians I met on both of those campuses, and a lot of them are active right now. And like, they're prof- they're they're professional musicians. They're they're studio musicians. They're 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 in these big productions. Right. And you know, I'm like, I used to sing
1: in a choir with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you one you may not realize had a Spring Hill connection. Jimmy Buffett.
0: Oh yeah, turns out he's from Pascagoula. That's right. We, we were talking about him not too long ago because. Uh, what a what a story that guy said
1: <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy Buffett uh, was dating a girl, a Spring Hill student. She was an English major. And they got married. That's who, you remember that old Come, come Monday song? Uh, that's who that was written about. Oh, okay, and, and they're still together. That's, that's amazing. They're still together 50 years later. But uh, there are stories, and I didn't hear these when I was there. I learned about them later because Buffett was there five or six years before me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, he would, uh, come visit her on the campus and uh, they say that he used to hang out and play his guitar all the time uh, on the Spring Hill campus there in Mobile. There was a
0: friend, Matt Maser. He's, uh, he's come on the show, uh, a few times now and he's got some stories when he was down on the coast. Uh, and he said that, uh. It was before Jimmy blew up, and they were down at the floor, of Bama, and they were there because his name was just rising to prominence. Where, oh man, you might get a chance to catch him. And it said it was like, you know, a real slow night at the floor, of Bama. It was kind of like a singer-songwriter night. And he popped in, played about five, six songs, didn't say a word to anybody, put his guitar up, and left. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. And he said, it, and he I wonder how many times that happened before people started picking up. It's like. You probably won't never get an opportunity to see something like that in a right in he, a room like this. He again. didn't even
1: introduce himself as Jimmy Buffett. He's just some guitar player who got up. and Didn't sang. say
0: a word. Just got up there and played. Wow!
1: Did <laughs> he play any of his big hits or?
0: I, it was before he was. I don't At know. If he, I don't know if he had those. You, right. You know. Gotcha. He was just. He was. Uh, you know, uh, cutting his teeth. Wow.
1: Well, well, there's a guy who really made it. Yeah. He's very talented.
0: And it was good to his community. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, whatever your thoughts are on uh, Margaritaville. and
1: the diff- Oh, that's a great I mean, song, man. Yeah.
0: I mean. <laughs> well, I mean, not just the song, but also the bars oh, yeah. and the New Orleans. venues. Is, is
1: that still there in New Orleans, I, Margaritaville?
0: I, I know there's one in Biloxi. I'm not sure yeah. about New Orleans. There,
1: there used to be one in the, in the quarter. In fact, I saw Leon Russell play there. Oh, nice. And uh, uh, it was, uh, I think, on Decatur Street, just uh, close to the river. Um, in uh, in the French Quarter, but last time I was down there, I, I think it was gone. I you know, I don't get New Orleans much anymore. Yeah, um, and it's changed some. It's changed a lot.
0: I was I, I never lived there. I was uh, I did some classes down there for a spell, so I'd have to go over of uh, about once every two weeks just to check in with professors. But, of uh, like, Katrina was what two thousand five? Yes, sir. Is that about right? That's right. And it, by August and it, and and it seems by. like I started going down to New Orleans in 2008, and it seems like if you give it three years, you won't even recognize it. Mm. It just changes so
1: much. Oh, it, Katrina devastated New Orleans. And I know from having lived there that the locals uh, kind of got uh, a little smug about uh, hurricanes because the vast majority of hurricanes miss New Orleans. The last, uh, even Hurricane Betsy in the mid '60s, really was more of a Mississippi uh, landfall. Than it was New Orleans, even though it affected New Orleans. But for the most part, year in and year out, those uh, and I used to run out there and chase them. Those hurricanes coming in, you know, all over the coast. I've chased them all the way down to Brownsville, Texas, and you know, over into Florida. Mm-hmm. And, uh, most of them miss, but uh, they weren't prepared for Katrina. Yeah. Uh, and it was uh of course as we well know now it wasn't just the wind i mean uh even though it was what category four or five i can't remember now i think
0: it was a five
1: it was five it was the water that's that's what yeah. uh, it's too it, much for the levees yeah exactly and uh because that city's already under sea level <laughs> it is that's right it's like a saucer yeah you know with the levees and Hopefully, the reinforcement of the levees—they spent billions of dollars down there trying to upgrade the levees. Uh, but you know, we got this climate change coming, and the weather patterns are different now. And the storms are stronger and more frequent. And uh, so, who knows? I, I hope uh, New Orleans is a special place, and I hope it will always be there. I hope, really? I hope, uh, I hope uh, the rising sea doesn't. Obliterate that New Orleans doesn't become another Atlantis. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, we hope and pray, right? That's all you can do. That's right.
0: Well, so uh, from TV, uh, you said you've worked in that industry, journalism, 30 years. That's right. And so uh, tell me a little bit about overseas. I mean, we talked a little bit about Japan, but. Uh, What about, did you get to see Tiananmen Square when
1: you was a child? Yes, sir. I I was there right after Tiananmen Square. And I would have been there on June 4th, I think that was the day, the crackdown. But I postponed my departure because my younger brother Brian was getting married that weekend in Shreveport. So uh, by the time that weekend was over with, the the worst of it, the crackdown had already taken place. Mm -hmm. I was there in the immediate aftermath of the crackdown. That's an
0: iconic picture of that young man and... Confirm, I wasn't. I was not. Take. I was
1: not in Beijing when that took place, but I was there very soon after, and I, I made probably I'd say at, at least three trips to, to Beijing, maybe four, uh, while I was based in Tokyo. And uh, yeah, that was that was a, a big story. And uh, uh, what can I say about it other than that? Uh, you know, for example, I, I remember uh, going out to this um, park. Uh, what do they call it? Uh, English corner, uh, where uh, the students, the Chinese students who spoke English, would gather on weekends to practice English. That was frowned upon by the government; they want you speaking English, right? Mm-hmm. So the, these uh, students who were, uh, or and they may not have all been students; they just may have been, you know, on their own trying to learn English. They would uh, meet. It was weird. It was like it was some kind of you know a place where nefarious activity was going on you know in 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 the woods you know you- i had uh this has been almost 10 years ago but when i was in college i had uh friends
0: of mine i was every time i was scheduled to go uh the door would be closed for me but they still went and they were in areas they called them secret churches Right. And that was a big thing. They were, right. they were teaching English, but they were right. using the Bible as. Yeah. And so yeah. That, that was also very frowned upon at yeah, that time.
1: Ex- exactly. Well, I, I would go to Mass when I was in Beijing, and, and to find a church, a Catholic church, they would be down the alleyway, mm-hmm. you know, behind some other building that had been put up. And then you, you go in there daily Mass. Uh, and the only folks who were in there, for the most part, were older women. Uh, only a few younger people, and uh, it, and it was questionable whether or not the uh, the priests who celebrated the mass were legit, right? They all had to be approved by the mm-hmm. Chinese government, and that that's still a controversy that's going on between the Holy See and China. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but it, it, at least uh, everywhere I went in the Middle East, uh, I would always seek out a church to go to, um, and. Uh, if I could, if I could find one. And so, yeah, I know the experience, how repressed Christianity is in China. Mm-hmm. They, they, It's a threat to them. And it isn't in Tokyo, too, but in Japan, uh, the, a lot of the Asians view Christianity as a tool of hegemony by the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're trying to convert people to Western
0: things. Yeah, and it's, it's a Western culture at that point, and they're, you know... As they should be very proud of their culture and their heritage, and like Christianity, is just
1: not—it's not in that. It doesn't match, you no, know? yeah. not not what they're. You know, for example, in China, I mean, uh, excuse me. Well, of course, China's Buddhism. Uh, in uh, in Japan, it's some Buddhism, but also Shinto, mm-hmm. which is basically nature worship and ancestor worship and that sort of thing. Uh, especially in Japan, uh, you know, some of the missionaries who've come over there over the years, St. Francis Xavier and others were uh, martyred and persecuted uh because they were seen as outsiders and J- japan as much as i love japan i love the japanese they're, they're great people a great culture but they're kind of clannish uh, they, they have a, a word for folks who aren't japanese gaijin oh, yeah i've and, heard it <laughs> and so you know it's like they divide the world either you're japanese or you're not mm-hmm. right if you're japanese you're you're pure you're acceptable um, if you're not gaijin, I mean, if you're not japanese well they even have a higher Yeah there's tiers there's <laughs> levels to it so, right. so that, that you know it's, that this is weird but uh, somehow the the united states earned their respect after the world war II. so uh, the uh, americans are the top level of gaijin huh. in spite of the fact that we dropped the bomb on them right but that's Japanese culture, you know. They 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 have wisdom. They understand that uh, we have to let them, you know. They understand about moving forward in history. And you mm-hmm. can't hold grudges.
0: Yeah, I've uh, a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends from the Philippines, and uh, that ancestor worship and of uh, just worship of nature. Of uh, it goes into demonology and exorcism, and I, I mean, there's a lot of. There's a lot of of exorcism stories from missionary friends of mine that went over there. Uh, there was I don't remember the name of it. I wouldn't say it if I did. But uh, the water demon is the the main one that they deal with in the Philippines.
1: Is that right? Mm-hmm. I hadn't heard that. Uh, I have been to the Philippines. I covered the uh, sixth and final coup attempt against Corazon Aquino in '89. Uh, but you know the Philippines and Korea. Uh, those are places where Christianity has made it's really
0: flourished, uh, yeah. uh, and I, I would grant it because of the Jesuits.
1: Yeah, the Jesuits, but also the um, you know all of the uh, missionaries from different faiths that had come over there and, and converted mm-hmm. uh, large uh, swaths of the population. I mean, you, you see a lot of uh, Filipino and uh, South Korean. Of course, it's frowned upon in North Korea, but. Uh, Christians, uh, mm-hmm. because of the work of the missionaries, and they were receptive to it. Of course, those um, cultures, especially the Philippines, don't have the kind of chauvinist uh, attitude that some of the other cultures do. And It's not just Asia. I mean, you know, France is known for being kind of chauvinistic, too. Yeah. <laughs> that you, doesn't mean the then, French are bad people, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, and, then, and then you see
0: the, the chauvinistic ideas being uh, brought to Africa, and especially right. the western side of it. Yeah,
1: yeah. So uh, yeah, that was an experience of a lifetime. Uh, being in uh, Asia, I loved Asia, and, and uh, I haven't been back since '92. Uh, I'd like to go back. It's very expensive. Very expensive to fly to uh, Japan, and mm-hmm. once you get there. The cost of living is like New York plus forty percent. <laughs> At least it was when I was there, and I don't yeah. know what, what And I'm sure it's relatively the same now. I, it, but it, you know. I haven't I haven't looked. But last I
0: looked, and this has been six months ago. Just like with, I've been really interested in like world economies, especially since coming out of the COVID. And uh, I want to say that they they're. Economy has been very robust compared to I think their third best Japan. as far as bouncing back.
1: yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. you know the, the, the Japanese are very meticulous planners. Uh, they're disciplined people. you know they have a strong sense of community. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know here here in the West, uh, particularly in puritanical America, the way people control you is by pushing your guilt buttons. Yeah, you know? they they operate on shame. You're a smart man. You've read about this stuff. That's exactly <laughs> that's, right. That's what I studied at uh, Mobile. Right, and uh, so what, you yeah. know, ask yourself, what is the difference? Well, the shame is embarrassment. Mm-hmm. You but know? not only on you, but For on everybody, your, but on your family, yeah. right, and You're your clan. family. That's right. And and so uh, if is it, you don't have a lot of violent crime in Japan, but very almost none. Because if someone got caught, they'd be terribly embarrassed, and they would bring shame, like you say, on their family and their yeah, community. Yeah, I mean, it could be you could be ostracized. ostracized. And uh, so they, they, don't, they just don't do that. You don't have the kind of crime problem. Now, I will say that uh, in, in one of the stories I did in Japan was on the Yakuza. That's the Japanese mm-hmm. mob. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were able to hook up with the mob, the Japanese mob, the Yakuza. And they, they, we went down to Kyoto, which is the ancient capital of Japan. They were the most hospitable people I've ever, you know, at least in Japan that I've been, they, they greeted us at the train station, Rolls Royce, Cadillac, Mercedes, three cars. Well, they're essentially,
0: they were all ostracized from their clans and made their own, right?
1: That's A lot of the, pe- the people who are members of the rank and file in the Yakuza are, are outcasts and losers. Yeah. A lot of them have uh, Korean blood. They're mixed, so they're not yeah. all that well accepted. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the weird thing is, you know, if if you screw up in the Yakuza, you have to cut your finger off. It starts out with at, at the joint, mm-hmm. you know. So if you screw up once, then your little finger, you know, whack, you know, at the tip. And if you do it again, then whack, you know. <laughs> and uh, I... I saw a couple of guys who had several fingers missing, and the other thing is uh, they they paint their whole bodies uh, with the old fashioned tattoos. It's not the kind that we have here in America where you go in a tattoo parlor. I mean, they use needles and you know, and it's painstaking. It hurts and it takes a long time, but but their bodies are so painted except for the portion that appears when you're wearing a suit, so they can put on a suit and you never really They even mm-hmm. have a tattoo, but. Their whole bodies, legs, torso, buttocks, back—you know—it's it's they're the illustrated men, you know. Um, but uh, it was very interesting, and and the the, the other thing about uh, yakuza has an interesting relationship with the government and the in the nation. Uh, it's almost as if Japan realizes that the yakuza serves a need, and so the the crime families. They each have a name. They are themselves not illegal. Uh, you'll go into Kyoto or other cities in Japan, and you'll see a 10-story office building, and the top of it has the name of the crime family on it. Oh, wow. Uh, but what they're doing, though, is that they, they, they are not only an illegal business. They're heavily involved in the construction industry in Japan. That's all legal. But they're also running guns. They're running prostitutes. They're yeah. they're drug bringing in dope they're laundering and washing that money. Exact washing the money. That's exactly right. They bring in back then it was called ice. I don't. I, it, uh, I'm sure it's devolved into something different now. But I guess that was a, a, a methamphetamine mm-hmm. or something. Uh, and and that was a drug of choice in Japan. By the way, there are not a lot of um, uh, not a lot of drugs in Japan. Uh, I mean, remember what happened to Paul McCartney when he got kind of caught with weed, right? <laughs> <It> was <laughs> or, a big deal! Or, uh, but uh, the, the the people who do dope, they they do uppers because you know they're workaholics. Mm-hmm. And uh, quick, interesting story: uh, um, when I was in Japan, not only did I get to meet and interview George and see Harrison and see some of his concerts, him and Eric, I met Eric too. Uh, but uh, the Rolling Stones came when I was there. Oh, and, nice! Uh, so. Uh, they had a, a press conference um, right before their uh, tours, their concerts, and it was, uh, it was it was a fairly small room, and it was about 25 Japanese journalists, and I was the only Western journalist there. I don't know why. I guess the you know my competitors, CBS and the wire service, they weren't interested in the Stones, but I showed up. And so there four, the are four of the Stones. Bill Wyman wasn't there. He was he was on, kind of on his way out, and he showed up at the last minute and played the concerts. But they the rest of them were all there to do the pre publicity. Mm-hmm. So they come walking in, and they're in these heavy heavy uh, uh, robes, and they kind of look like the mid '60s. It's not like in America the Stones play; they're dressed in jeans and kind of dressed down. But they're dressed they're high dress, you know. They come walking in. And this the the reason it was newsworthy was because the, the, the Stones had not played Japan in 25 years because of Keith Richards' drug record. They wouldn't let him in the country. They finally let him in, and I think this was '91. And uh, they step up to the mic, and uh, so Jagger's doing all the talking. Well, we're going to play. This, we're going to do here, blah blah, blah, blah blah. And the Japanese are all listening very politely. So, so finally, he, he finishes his spiel, and one of the Japanese who sort of said, um. Oh. Mr. Jagger uh, is okay. We ask a question to Mr. Richards, and, and uh, we we saw that uh, Keith is sitting there smoking a cigarette. Right, you could do that in Japan then. You know, mm-hmm. the other three, uh, Charlie Watts and uh, Don, Ron Wood and Jagger, they you could visibly see they tensed up. You know, like, <laughs> right. Are we about to be banned yes, again. That's right. <laughs> So, uh, so, but I think part of it was a put on, okay? Yeah. Uh, and so, Jagger sort of steps aside, and, and Keith steps up to the mic with his, with his swagger. Of course, he did. And, and uh, <laughs> oh, Mr. Richards, this is your first time in Japan in twenty five years? How you like? And uh, so, there's this kind of an awkward silence for a moment, and then he says, You're "Surprised, delightfully surprised." <laughs> <laughs> Now, I don't know whether he was, uh, you know, buzzing or, you know, whatnot. But, he, but he, he, you know, he, they played into their bad boy image, right? So yeah. uh, what I'd read, and I, I'd read uh, Keith Ripp part of it anyway, his autobiography. And uh, he talked about it, you know, even though he had the purest heroin, you know, when he was a, a junkie. Whenever they went on the road, he'd kick it. So when they when they were playing, you know, he wasn't on the, the right. dope, but he seemed to have an ability to go in and out of it, which is
0: rare for something that that's right that hard of a drug. Yeah, it's because especially like during the nineties, it took so many Lane Staley or uh, Bradley from Sublime. A lot of those guys from the nineties and early two thousands were just wiped out by
1: heroin. Yeah, I know, Uh, and and not only uh, that,
0: now it seems to be painkillers and
1: yeah, and crystal methamphetamine. I mean, that's just that's nasty stuff, man. Uh, I don't even know. I don't even want to know why it's become so popular. I don't want to have. I I just it's very
0: dangerous. uh, And it's coming its way around in the folk Americana, uh, to where I'm hearing it in the lyrics. But I'm hearing uh, the songwriters call friends that they've had to leave behind or are buried now uh they'll they'll mention it uh, by saying meth mouth meth mouth or meth teeth meth teeth so, well, and they'll and they'll signify as like i had to get away from that
1: right well yeah. if you do meth too much your teeth start to fall out and mm-hmm. uh yeah it's it's, it's not good it's, I suppose a poor man's drug is, uh, I mean, battery acid, what do they put in that
0: stuff? Oh, mercy, I don't, know. Uh, I know when you go to Dollar General, you had to be careful of how much uh, Robitussin or whatever it was you bought or not, your name would have been put on a list. Well, they chase, yeah. they chase you down,
1: they chase you down. I remember there not too long ago, a, a a guy that I knew indirectly, he was a judge over in Alabama, got busted after he was going buying that stuff, terrible story. Sudafed
0: Sad. is what it was, Sudafed. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh,
1: but uh, yeah. So, well, what made you want to get involved in politics? Hey, that's a good question. I, I've, to, you know, uh, I think what really, really spurred my interest in politics was uh, covering the state legislature in Louisiana, because uh, Louisiana. As you well know, politics down there is a, is a real freak show. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's... Yeah, there's I, a, I thought it was bad here. Right.
0: <laughs> it's, well, well, it's a the, different the, animal there, yeah. Well, it
1: is a totally different animal. And, and, of course, you have to understand that Mississippi is primarily English Protestant. Uh, New Orleans is more French Catholic. French, yeah. And uh, they're, they have a little looser uh, ethic than than the Puritans do. And uh, uh, some of the big names in Louisiana, um, uh, Huey Long, and uh, they, they were interesting folks because people knew they were corrupt, and that, that was okay, but as long as they ran the state well. And Huey was a great governor. Mm-hmm. And uh, but, but the, my contemporary, you know, the one I covered, uh, modern-day Huey Long was Edwin Edwards. And uh, Edwin uh, ended up doing, like, an eight-year stint in the federal pen after serving four terms as governor. Uh, and the feds had been after him for a long time. And uh, his first uh, indictment was back in 1985. And uh, he, he was tried twice on the same charges. And uh, the first ended after a three-month trial and a hung jury. And then they tried him again in a six-week trial, and he was acquitted. Uh, but several years later they came after him again on a different case and that's when they nailed him but uh, I'll tell you uh, there are lots of funny stories and, and some of the f- uh, figures who are in Louisiana politics are, are just characters mm-hmm. uh, you, you know they're fun to talk to they don't they don't run away from you like politicians in other parts of the country california or do or here alabama or mississippi i mean they're happy to talk to you and and, and the the thing that uh, the, the populace in louisiana uh, lo- loves hearing about all the adventures and misadventures their politicians have been in and and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to elect them right mm-hmm. um so the, the uh Indictment. The first indictment that I covered with Edwin's, this was a case involving he had, he was out of office. He'd served two terms, and he was sitting out for a term before he ran again for the third term. And he and a couple of businessmen came up with a scheme where they were selling approvals for hospitals, and they were the ones applying for the hospital. So each of these approvals, they call them a certificate of need, Mm-hmm. Uh, it was worth about one and a half million dollars, but it was illegal to sell them so what they did was create a dummy corporation whose only asset was the certificate of need and so so the, yeah, so the government came after them uh, with uh, fraud and racketeering and uh, this uh, grand jury investigation went on for months, and it was an open secret. Everybody knew. I mean, I would be stationed out there every Friday and see whose witness were going in to you know, try to figure out where the investigation was going. Well, finally, the day came where Edwards, Governor Edwards himself, was due to appear. Every agency, every news agency in Louisiana, from Shreveport to New Orleans, from Lake Charles to Monroe, they were all gathered on the uh, sidewalk in front of the federal court building where he's going to come in. So he shows up, and uh, he's elbowing his way past all these reporters. They're firing questions at him he may or may not answer. And I put myself and my cameraman right at the door so we'd be the last people he saw when he went in. And I had to come up with a question, and I knew he wasn't going to have time to stop and answer anything substantive, right? Mm-hmm. So I wasn't going to ask. A good, him, yes, no, right? Or he'd just blow me off. Say so I can't talk right now. So, but he was famous for his quips, right? He was, he was very quick on his feet. So I thought I got to come up with a question that is going to elicit the color, the colorful nature of this man. You know, came up with the first, the right question. I, I know what I'll ask. So he he gets up there and I said, Governor, do you have anything to hide? And I put the mic in his face. He didn't miss a beat. He says, "Oh yes, but not in connection with this investigation," and walks in there.
0: <laughs> everybody everybody just oh, fell out laughing. That's great. Because at that point, I mean, like, I imagine like that time, that style of journalism is like. Oh, if you would just get in the mud with a pig like me, right? Right. right. Here. <laughs> and he hopped right in there. Oh, he did. He knew. <laughs>
1: I mean, this is the guy that said the only way I'm going to lose this election is if I get caught in bed with a dead girl or a live boy. <laughs> <laughs> And then, uh, uh, then he ran again for a four- he won the third election. He, and then, if you m- remember, he, he ran for a fourth term against David Duke, the KKK guy. Right? Mm-hmm. They had the stickers in Louisiana that said, uh, "Vote for the crook." It's important. <laughs> and uh, uh, there was a my old station WWL had a live debate between Duke and Edwards. This was you know, and uh, Edwards had had the foresight because Edwards was about five seven. Something. He's not a tall man. Duke was taller than Edwards. Edwards called to the station and said, "I want a platform under my podium, that like six inches." So now Edwards is going to be taller than Duke. So, so they show up and they're in the studio and they're getting ready to go on live. And Duke gets there and he says, "Hey, I didn't get a platform." And Edwards says, "That's your problem, Dave. You don't have a platform." <laughs> and then they went right on live. <laughs> 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 that's why I'm interested in politics yeah uh, it was very recent
0: uh, for me it, it may have been 2000 2012 uh, where I really started getting engaged at least on a federal level like I know like uh, I, I, I tell people if you're going to bother with politics focus on uh, your community and then your state because I mean federal is getting a little bit out of your hand but Uh, You can't have an impact there, but uh, it's just seeing, like, just how everything's starting to play out. And I had a a friend of mine, she was studying law at the University of Mobile, and now she's well on her way uh, to getting into the political game, I want to say on the federal level, in a few years. But um, we would meet for lunch a lot of times while we were studying at Mobile, and uh, she would tell me, you know, I wish you'd quit worrying so much about uh, sports and music and all that she's like, in the end of the day uh, politics is going to control your day to day so you really do need to be well informed and be ready to talk about it at any given point just like you are with your sport facts or your music knowledge
1: Right, yeah, well uh, you know, a big part of political coverage is uh, politics as theater mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's almost like watching a contact sport uh, what I wish we had more in our news coverage is more focus on the policy and the stances that the candidates are taking and less so much on the theatrics. Mm. But that's not what draws ratings. That's not the clickbait. People want to hear the scandals. They want to hear the titillation. They want to hear the humor, and I totally get it. But, I, I would, you know, uh, look, it, I click the bait when I see these things. I think lots of folks do. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a way that we can better bring in what these people stand for, really, what they really stand for. Yeah. yeah instead th- instead of what they're saying.
0: And I think, like, since the advent of, like, social media is as large as it's become, it has permanently changed the way uh, journalism is done. There's no doubt about it. Uh, to where now it's, uh, I mean, I've interviewed uh, the sitting mayor while he was up for running for election in this town. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that was... That was very interesting because I had never done anything like that, and uh, it was good for his campaign. He got he got some donations out of it, and like I got to ask some questions that everyday citizens was really wanting to know. And you got to hear him in depth actually talk about it to where you were talking about like instead of this theatrics. Let's get to what do you actually believe? What are you going to do about this? This is something that the citizens here are really concerned about, right? Uh, right. Rather than. A gotcha moment, or yeah, but like with you know with Twitter or social media, I think the percentage of Americans now who get their news from Facebook is upwards to like seventy two percent, and a lot of that is just clickbait nonsense.
1: It is, and some of it is is fake on purpose. Mm-hmm. And it is people, to mislead and distract. Right. A lot of people fall for it. Um, that's why it's so important that we have uh, media literacy. I, I think it should should be a required course in high school. Media literacy uh, to teach people about how you tell the difference between a phony news site and a real one. Things like look for a date, you know, the date of the publication, mm-hmm. right? Or l- examine the the banner. Does that look real or is that phony? You know, Th- things like that. Um, uh, I'm,
0: I'm thankful for like we have companies like Newsguard that kind of hold these different. Uh, news places accountable for what they do, and they, you know they give them Pinocchios and right. strikes for
1: yeah. For, but I, even that's not enough. No, it's it's not, and, and and unfortunately, even some of the fact checkers are planting misinformation. You yeah, know, and it's it's hard to discern, especially in this day and age. Uh, but you know, uh, you're absolutely right. It, if you go back to the uh, printing press, around about 1450, the the. The changes that that brought about in society were profound mm-hmm. one of the biggest changes was that for the first time, Bibles were available to the common people right They were able to print Bibles up until that time, the Catholic Church was kind of the keeper of the word right Not everybody could have a Bible because you know they were they'd been hand uh, and that brought about the Protestant Reformation, you know, for better or worse, That's right. right? So, uh, and but that that was that evolved over decades and centuries. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is going to happen with the internet. We're just now beginning to uh, uh, see how the internet is changing our society, uh, and it's not all going to be good, you know. For one That's thing, right. what I worry about is we're becoming too reliant on the internet.
0: Uh. Oh, but yeah, it's crazy. Like, uh, I mean, I noticed my nephew, he's 10 years old, and uh, he's asking for one of these. Hmm. And he's a smart kid, uh, top of his class right now. And that's what I was trying to explain to him. I was like, as nice as these things are, uh, you you can know anything at any given moment. With this device, you can look it up. I was like, buddy, like, hold the path you're on right now for as long as you are because you'll set yourself apart if you know how to do Real research, because I remember a time, like especially when I was in college, Wikipedia was not a source that you could use because it yeah. was easily manipulated. Now in college, you can use it as a source. And yeah, I'm like, this I, is.
1: I, yeah, that's, and I don't think that's a good thing. I, you know, I like, whatever
0: happened to going to the library, right? And, like, going through these books and that's actually
1: right. doing research. Well, that's how that you learn the hard way what you can believe, right? Mm-hmm. If if it's published in... Uh, uh, it's been put in a library and gone through a library board review and all that. Uh, it's it's more likely to have credibility. Uh, anybody can put anything on the on the internet, mm-hmm. and the other thing too is that you get your nephew a cell phone. Uh, he's going to be um, able to be followed. You know, in and, and record like you know. Uh, when I'm texting, I just noticed this yesterday. I, I was in a text conversation, and then I finished the text, and I was having a conversation with someone else. And I looked down, and it was copying what I was saying. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I don't, you know, this is a private conversation. Right. And I can easily see how that could uh, get, you know, I could accidentally hit the arrow button, and it's all of a sudden this confidential conversation is out there, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, there's all kinds of uh uh, things that, uh, uh, issues that are going to have to be ironed through as we move along. And we're just now beginning, and uh, we'll see. I hope, I hope uh, you know, there, it's been so good for so many reasons. Uh, it's made research easier. And like, for example, in my law practice, I, you know, I can go on Westlaw now online, and I can access stuff that uh, in past you'd have to go physically to the library to get. So there's so many blessings and good things that have come out of the Internet, but we have to be watchful that because uh, mm-hmm. you can see how uh, look at the January sixth and and how the, all this misinformation got put out there and we have people who are misled and they're they're ferv- they are fervent and they're they're emotional and, and it's hard they hard for them to see that what they're doing you know they're they're trying to overturn the government they're trying to overthrow the government you know uh, they're invading the people's house in, in 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 a violent way and and they, they're convinced in the righteousness of their cause that's scary yeah i don't care whether it's republicans or democrat you know or something else yeah and uh, if, if it is
0: such a spectacle and i'll never forget that i i guess he's still sitting in federal prison but the guy with the the big right yeah, woolly, yeah right I I still have that image saved on my phone. I've got two images saved from that phone. One when he hit the, uh, I think it was either the the room Congress meets in or the Senate uh, meets in, and he's stepping down to go uh, step up and sit in the speaker's uh, seat, and then the other one with uh, just all the smoke and chaos around the building on the outside. Right. And uh it's been very interesting how that story has developed. Uh, what are we going on two
1: years, and it's still a well talked about story. And but not only is a well talked about story, the investigations continue. Yeah, I mean, you know, these guys are who were involved, are cop and pleas and getting convicted, and what is it, something like eight hundred or so uh, uh, convictions so far, or, or pleas, or something like that. I was invited up to go to D.C. on that
0: day, and I'm so glad I stayed home. <laughs> Is that right? Because I, I, I do some field recording of journalistic kind of endeavors like that to where I'll have a little field recorder, and I'll be trying to – I did it a lot during the uh, BOM of right. rallies. Yep. I covered three in Mississippi. I never released mm-hmm. any of what I recorded because mm-hmm. of I, I thought it was just – it was too hot of a topic, and right. i didn't I didn't want to really have any kind of stamp on it, yeah, I know we but would. like the the impressions and interviews that I got from that day from the different people who were involved it probably would have done a lot of good for people who really didn't understand what it was about uh but you know, our I, politics—I just, I just don't know.
1: Our, our politics has become so radicalized. I mean, you've got the woke on one side, and you've got the white, the right wing nuts on the other side. Mm-hmm. And what happened to moderation? Yeah, yeah. Po- politics is the art of compromise. We no- have—we uh, do a show
0: inside this show called Off the Deep End, to where we focus on like the the right wing conspiracies, right, and just have fun with it, right and some sometimes we'll do like the left wing and like it's it's crazy like just some of the comments you'll get after you drop that and people are listening it's like you don't actually believe that dude right. i was like i just wanted you to hear how insane this is that's
1: right exactly because <laughs> i think some people it's like you can't see the forest for the trees yeah they get emotionally involved and it's hard to stand back yeah. and say wait a minute what's going on here the the thing is that nobody gets their way all the time. Right. And it's unrealistic to think that, by God, we're going to hold the line. And, uh, you know, uh, it's just, just not the way our system is set up. Our system is set up for, you know, this is a democratic republic. You know, we get all kinds of stuff, you know, Republicans especially, like, say, this is not a democracy, this is a republic. Well, a republic is nothing but a representative democracy. It's a form of democracy. Yeah. You know, as opposed to, you know, our system was set up where our gov- we were governed from the ground up, not from the top down, as in the U.K. back in the day, when the king, you know, was still a powerful figure mm-hmm. and, and issued edicts uh, and that must be obeyed or else... Uh, come to the guillotine you know and uh so uh, i just hope that we uh, kind of chill out a little bit after this period it, it's always going to be a, a scandal a, you know a teapot dome scandal or you know something like like that or yeah uh, but yeah i'm uh like i said since
0: 2012 you know a little over 10 years now i've been very interested in politics but I'm very careful about who I discuss it with because it's become a very emotional thing really to is. some people. Really Really And I, I like talking with people that I don't typically agree with because it gives us it's a great conversation if we can leave our emotions out.
1: Exactly. You know the the same. I I totally agree with you. Uh, you know the purpose of conversation is not to win an argument. No. The purpose of a conversation it's convey a point of view is and and to learn. Uh, you know, if I have a, 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 an opinion and I share it with you, I want to know what you think, mm-hmm. and I want to test what I think against what you think. An iron, and, a sharpened iron. And you, right? You might tell me something that might change my mind, or you might say something that reinforces what I already think. Mm-hmm. But the but the point is, when it's over with, we shake hands and go home. There doesn't have to be. A, I'm putting you on a list somewhere, and I'm going to send somebody yeah. out to your house. Uh, We're going to send. you know, Please, Let, let's be civil.
0: Mm-hmm. We are approaching uh, the two-hour mark. Oh boy! Okay, right. <laughs> so I got, uh, I, got, I,
1: got, I got somewhere to go. Dude. Yeah,
0: I do. I do uh, uh, want to invite you back on. I'd love to have you on again. We didn't uh, get to everywhere I wanted to go, but uh, well, that's okay. I, I have really enjoyed myself.
1: I have too much, and I, I have too and. uh, uh, I would like to share with your listener. Uh, I would I would love for your listener to hear some of my stuff, and I, I have a website, TaylorHenry.net, all lowercase one word, TaylorHenry.net, okay. and, and some of my. Uh,
0: I might uh, download a song off of there.
1: That would be great,
0: and I'll plug it at the
1: end of the episode. I would love that. And any uh, particular one? Oh, you just go on pick, take your pick. They're all demos. You okay. know none, none of these are. Uh, they're not ready for mass distribution yeah they're uh basically you know a demo this is how the song goes Is you know, here are the lyrics there's the melody uh here's how the instrumentation might go uh, mm-hmm. uh yeah they're roadmaps. yeah uh but yeah I, over the years i've you know sometimes i go a long time and i don't write a song and i've written a lot of songs for my kids i you know I was uh, writing birthday songs when they were little you know that's always fun man i've i've wrote a lot of silly songs with Nephews
0: and my right. friends' kids, and that's, that's
1: a great, it's a great way, right? Yes, it yeah. is, and it's a great way to show love. They say there's no better way to show love to your kid than to sing to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I've tried to show love to my kids. To me, music is love. Yeah, and uh, it's it's it touches your soul in a way that plain language doesn't. You know, it takes you a different place, and yet it's still communicating.
0: It transcends language, yeah, uh, and absolutely. it all, it all, The only thing, and it goes back to what we said earlier. The only thing that it doesn't transcend, in my opinion, is God. Uh, it's right—it's be, sure. right below that because it can, uh, it can, it can be transcended uh, in sharing about faith as well.
1: Sure, it is. Sure, it is. And it, you know, in a way, you can kind of look at it as a, a, a step ladder to God. It's you know, it, it kind of brings you up into the. What metaphysical, the spiritual, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, there's there's a language of music that that's uh, that, like you say, transcends normal language and speech. Mm-hmm. So, thank you so much for. Yeah, la- okay. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you, man. Well, was- Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Crispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day.